News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I hope you had a good sleep last night, a good solid sleep. Maybe you even had some dreams. Here's the thing, though. Do you remember them? Not everybody does. And in fact, there's a lot of research out there about what it means if you do remember your dreams versus those who do not. Now, for the record, I am one of those who does not often remember my dreams. And you know what? It can be frustrating when you wake up in the morning and you think, I know I dreamt something. What was it? What was it? And you can't remember it. So what does all of that mean? And maybe can I train myself to remember what I dream? Well, turns out that can be done. But let's learn more about it with the help of our next guest. It's Dr. Deirdre Barrett, who is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard University and editor-in-chief of Dreaming, the Journal of the Association for the Study of Dreams. Well, Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for joining us. Now, why do I need to remember my dreams? Or I guess I should ask, do I need to remember my dreams? Um, I don't think you need to in some absolute sense, like you couldn't survive without it. And there are many people who naturally recall very, very few of their dreams, like one less than one a year is is ordinary. It certainly enriches the lives of people who can, but we we don't get every positive experience we possibly could out of life. So I think I think it's a beneficial but not not literally necessary. Okay, so what are the benefits of remembering your dreams? Um our dreams are just our own mind thinking in a very different biochemical state, but our dreams are still about the same thoughts and concerns that we think about awake, our, you know, our hopes, our fears, uh, our personal lives, sometimes our professional lives. And because we're in a state that's so much more visual and somewhat more emotional and less logical and linear, we really think outside the box in different ways. So some major scientific discoveries, as well as lots and lots of novels, visual art, have come from dreams. So they certainly give us a different mode of thought on all of our usual concerns. Those are the benefits. Hmm. Also, I would imagine for some people, the dreams are kind of the visual manifestation or the feeling of some anxieties or or some, some things that they've been worrying about. Yes, certainly the, I, I, I said important scientific discoveries have come from dreams, but certainly more of our dreams are about our personal lives. And it's a little harder to pin down and do research on the dreams that, you know, give us a new perspective on some relationship we have, but certainly that's, that's an even more important thing that many people get from them. Now, I'm the kind of person And who, then lots of people yeah. just enjoy some of them. Okay, well, that's... Sorry to interrupt. See, that's, you that's, were saying you are. I am one of those people who doesn't really remember their dreams very often, uh, but I would mm-hmm. like to remember them more often because sometimes I do wake up thinking, oh, I, I know I dreamed something. Like, I wish I could remember what that is. Can I train my brain to remember it? Uh, you, you can increase your dream recall. The The original individual differences between people are probably stronger than the effects of dream recall techniques. Some people just naturally remember five a night, pretty much every dream they're having, and other people, like I say, less than once a year. But from any base rate, you can get more 
recall. So some of the things that help recall are, first of all, the most boring, but one of the most important ones is get plenty of sleep because we're, we're in rapid eye movement sleep, which is when most dreams happen every 90 minutes, but each REM period gets longer than the last. So if you only sleep for six instead of eight hours, you're not getting 75% of your dream time. You're getting a little less than half your dream time. So losing sleep cuts down the most on dreams. So you want to get seven and a half or eight hours of sleep a night for, for most people. Uh, and that will tend to increase dream recall for everyone. Then um, setting an intention as you're falling asleep to remind yourself that you want to remember your dreams is useful. Uh, Keeping a, we used to say pad and pen by the bed, and some people still do that, but one's uh, phone for, you know, voice to text is the more common method, but some way to record your dreams when, when you wake up, as soon as you wake up. Because often we do have a bit of recall right upon awakening that is just gone within a couple minutes. There's so many people tell me, oh, I I woke up and I knew I'd had the most exciting dream. I was so excited to tell you about it. And now I can't remember anything except the thought that I'd had an exciting dream. So you want to get it down right away. So, so those are some of the main techniques. Just... Uh, Anyone, someone listening to this radio bit today may be likelier to recall their dream tonight just from kind of hearing conversations about dreams makes them a bit more relevant. Reading a book on it, taking a course on it, anything that kind of brings dreams to the forefront of your mind. But that can be as simple as, as what I said about just telling yourself as you're falling asleep that you right. want to remember what, your dream. What about age? Does age impact this? Like the older we get, are we still good at doing this? Um, it, dream recall declines with age, but fairly subtly. Again, it's it's not as big an effect as just the original differences for people, but dream recall goes up through much of childhood and then sort of late childhood through adolescent, it peaks. And then through adult life, it declines on average, but not not dramatically. And these things can affect or reverse that. Also, uh, men recall slightly fewer dreams than women across the lifespan. That's really? true for little boys and adult men. Yes. Again, it's a it's a small effect, but when, when you look at large groups, it's a statistically very significant effect. But um, again, just the individual differences in some people recall a lot and others recall very few and most people are somewhere in the middle and recall one or two a week when they're younger and it gets to be somewhat less than that if they're an older adult. Mm, do our, does our personality kind of influence who remembers dreams and who doesn't, like if you're an introvert versus an extrovert? Yes, there are lots of personality correlates, although, again, they're kind of subtle effects that you have to do big group studies to see that they're really statistically significant. But some of those are, um, the one you mentioned, in introversion, um, correlates a bit with it, but some things related to that 
correlate more strongly like psychological mindedness, basically people who are thinking a little more about internal processes versus very oriented to the practical physical world seem to recall a few more dreams. Uh, most of the scales of creativity correlate with it a bit, although creativity scales correlate so poorly with each other that that's not, that's not totally true. Um, but, and uh, any kind of test for how vivid your imagination is, including the scales of hypnotizability, are kind of basically uh, vividness of imagination scales. They all correlate somewhat. But again, some of the more boring things like how many hours of sleep you get a night is actually a stronger correlate than the personality things. I am going to remember that then as I am going to bed tonight and see what happens. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Okay, interesting to talk to you. Good, good luck with remembering a dream tonight. We'll see how that goes, right? That's Dr. Deirdre Barrett, professor of psychiatry at Harvard University and editor-in-chief of Dreaming, the journal of the Association for the Study of Dreams. Gives you an idea of how significant that is. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, there's a lot to cover with Vaughn Palmer this morning from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right, let's talk about BC Ferry, shall we? We're speaking with Rob Fleming, the Transportation Minister, coming up in the next hour. But uh, do you remember something like this ever happening before, where they're going to fine BC ferries? Yeah, look, Simi, I was listening to your news this morning and and the news yesterday, and I had an onion moment. You know, that's one of those moments where you go, is this a satire mounted by the (laughs) satirical website, The Onion? BC Ferries which gives this enormous subsidy from the B.C. government, and the New Democrats have taken total control of B.C. ferries, and they're going to fine B.C. ferries for missed sailings that are driven by crew shortages. Uh, The fine, Simi, $7,000. Wow, that's really going to make them smarten up at ferries. That's a $7,000 clawback on the $700 million the New Democrats have given BC Ferries over the past year. You know, this is ridiculous. (laughs) I have to say, it doesn't add up. Uh, The reason there are canceled sailings on BC Ferries because of crew shortages is twofold. I mean, one of the first things is that it's very difficult to attract people to ferries, although they're getting better at it, but that's a wage benefit pricing marketing challenge. Another reason is crew members are told to stay home when they're sick, especially. I mean, we have all heard that. And the third reason is staffing levels set by Transport Canada, a federal agency. So I don't really see how ferries can affect any of those things And in addition, with the ferries sitting on top of a massive pile of government-provided cash, why would it have any impact at all? So it is kind of, I heard um, opposition leader Kevin Falcon saying, you know, giving them money that's just going to, they're going to take back again? Is that it? Yeah, it's a clawback on the subsidy. I mean, they can do the accounting in different ways. They say, well, now, this is not going to affect fares. Well, no, because fares are already set by a regulator, and the regulator has capped fare increases at 3.2% on 
over the next three years. But it's not going to affect salaries in the BC Ferries executive suite among NDP appointees on the board. It's not going to affect the union because the union uh, is already, you know, saying, hey, there's a problem with wages and benefits in attracting ferry workers that they're losing people to private operators. It isn't going to persuade the Federal Transportation Agency to change its view on crewing levels. So I I just think it's ridiculous. They're basically clawing back, uh, what is it, one one thousandth of one percent. I may have done the math slightly weird on that, but in any event, they're clawing back $7,000 per cancellation out of a provincial subsidy of $700 million. I don't see how that would affect any decision-making at BC Ferries. I think it's just an empty gesture in public relations by a government determined to show it's doing something about the problem. Uh, this is not doing anything about the problem. Because if people just read the headline, they'd go, oh, okay, good. Yeah, it's right? about time. Exactly. It's about <laughs> man, time. Oh, man, I'm going to make them smarten up down there. I can just see the board <laughs> meeting, Joy McPhail, former NDP cabinet minister, convening her board and going, oh, man, oh, man, they're getting tough with us here in the provincial government. $7,000 fines. This is like, Wow. We really got to smarten up. Are they taking back any of the $700 million uh, that they gave us? Well, um, they're taking it back $7,000 at a time. So how many cancellations would you be able to get away with before that actually impacted the bottom line? All of them. Uh, So what (laughs) happens then um, with the, the, there was a ferry increase rate set too, right, for that. And and the money that they have been given, that $700 million you mentioned, that can't go towards funding day-to-day operations, can it? Well, that's supposedly. So there are two subsidies. There's the annual subsidy, which is about $200 million. And then there's the one-time subsidy, which is $500 million. That supposedly they can't use the one-time subsidy to reduce rates. Uh, But, you know, the ferry commissioner came back with a report. And originally the ferry commissioner was saying she's independent. She said, we were looking at 9.2% a year increases on ferries. And now it only needs to be 3.2% a year for four years. So uh, they found the money somewhere in there. And as I said, uh, this is a challenge perhaps for chartered accountants, but the government subsidy does appear to have, at least in the short term, four years, taken some of the pressure off the bottom line at ferries. They also, it's also allowed the ferries to continue with what they also need to do, which is also a factor in cancellations, and that is upgrading the fleet. As we know, uh, one of the biggest problems this summer and stretching into the fall is that the ferries are wearing out. They're old ships, they've got all kinds of problems, and they need to modernize the fleet. And that's going on well if the fiscal squeeze at ferries had forced cancellation of that. Um, I think, you know, the the fleet would be in trouble for a long time. So the half a billion dollar one-time subsidy is supposed to underwrite that as well, reduce some of the pressures on recruitment and make it easier, all that. Mm -hmm. And it will. But, you know, as I said... uh, we're, we're going to get the details on the penalties in the spring. So this story is not going to go away. 
but a penalty of $7,000 for a canceled sailing uh, for crew shortage reasons. Well, there were a thousand of those in the past year. So I guess if you multiply 7,000 by a thousand, you start to get talking real money, but not if you're comparing it to $700 million subsidy. Mm-hmm. All right. So well, things that we're going to be asking Rob Fleming about coming up in the next hour of the show. I but look forward to it. Simi. I look forward to it, too, now, Vaughn, after talking to you. But we have more to talk to you about and talking about the first day of the fall opening of the legislature. And boy, there were some fireworks, Vaughn. There really were, Simi. We'd been wondering with the B.C. Conservatives having been recognized as the fourth party in the legislature, what their leader, John Rustad, would do with the access to question period. And we got the answer. His first question was on SOGI, the policy that the government he was a part of brought in, uh, sexual orientation and uh, gender awareness in the schools. And he went at the government, Rustad did, and he said, would the government admit this was divisive? So we got an answer where Rustad's going on the issues. He's staking out territory for social conservatives. The drama, however, Simi, came with the answer. Uh, The question was pitched to the education minister, but the premier got up and answered. And man, did he blast Rustad. Oh boy, did he ever. People people can go on and and find it. It's all over social media. It's on the Hansard website. And uh, summarizing, he basically accused Rustad of political opportunism, of targeting vulnerable youth who are in danger of suicide and of importing the U.S. cultural wars to B.C. And he finished, the premier did, with he should be ashamed of himself. Uh, I've seen some tense moments in the legislature and some dramatic ones. Uh, That's one of the most dramatic I've seen in a while, Simi. And what happened next is dramatic because... Of course, the New Democrats applauded the Premier and then gave him a standing ovation. But I sit and I'm looking at BC United and the BC United members start thumping their desks. Eleanor Sturko was the first, but the others all joined in. And then they stood up, most of them, and gave the Premier a standing ovation. There were three Liberal uh, BC United who didn't join, but... I, again, I'm trying to think of a time that a premier gave what was essentially a partisan response and question period and got a standing ovation from the opposition. It really was dramatic. It really was. And that is being shared. I saw that video right across the country. People are sharing that for the answer that the premier gave to John Rustad. And I thought Kevin Falcon said it well, too. He said, listen, there's a lot of things we're going to disagree on. This is not one of them. No, that's true. Now, Rustad's answer is interesting. Uh, He, in the House, asked another question on the same theme. Um, And, uh, you know, go into the details of what he said, but he claimed that parents are terrified and children are coming home to use the washroom because they're afraid to go into the ones at the school and all that. The essence of what he did, and he said he's not going to be intimidated, was he sent a big signal that... John Rustad and the B.C. Conservatives are going to be the voice in the B.C. legislature and B.C. politics for social conservatives. So Rustad was part of a center-right government under two premiers, Christy Clark and Gordon Campbell, that were certainly economically conservative. But 
Campbell in particular, but also Christy Clark, said we are not going to go out and court the social conservative vote. And they demonstrated it on a number of issues. Uh, Yes, there was some voicing of support for that, but they made it very clear they weren't going to be doing that. Uh, Rustad is really the first BC party leader to come out and say that's where he's going. He's going after the social conservative vote. They really haven't had a voice in the BC legislature since Bill Vanderzam resigned as premier 30 years ago. On the so it's a big major political development. Whatever you think of social conservative views, they now have a voice in the legislature. It's John Rustad. And it is going to have a disruptive influence on voting patterns in B.C. And I think it was pretty obvious yesterday. Okay, and let's talk about some of the new guidelines that they were trying to keep in place. Like it was supposed to be a 45 second guideline for questions and answers. Okay, well, I would give them credit for at least trying yesterday. There was less heckling in the House. There were some groans. There was a bit of grumbling, but much less than we've seen in the past. The new rule or the target is to keep questions and answers more to the point, down to 45 seconds. Uh, I would say most of the members were within, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds of that uh, guideline. And several members really lived by the rules. The premier uh, certainly uh, was uh, 45 seconds as best he could. Shirley Bond of the opposition was less. Sonia Furstenau of the Greens. And the, and the Greens are known to be rather long-winded in question periods. So I especially give her credit. And there was one member who clearly didn't get the memo. The Minister of Forests, Bruce Ralston, ran the clock out on both of his answers almost two minutes. And out in the hallway had no apologies uh, to Keith Baldry. He said, well, I have a lot to say. But in general, for a first day, for a trial run, uh, they're trying. They should be encouraged. Um, We'll see how it unfolds. The House isn't even sitting next week, so they've got time to work up their game and live within the rules. But no, I I think I'd say I'll give it a B plus for day one. Okay, but clearly, even from what we've just talked about this morning, it feels like a very different tone in this legislature. Yeah, it's a very different tone, and it's going to be a very different tone. Look, Rustad gets asked in the hallway, how do you feel about all this? You know, BC United joining in with the Greens and the New Democrats on this issue against you. And he said, look, he said, my line is... There are three left of center parties in the legislature and three lefts don't make a right. His, he's very clear about where he's going. Uh, he's an experienced politician, Simi. He knows what he's doing. You know, he knows that with a new party, you've got to find a place on the political spectrum that isn't already occupied and social conservative values, I would say, is the place he's chosen. Uh, he has to get attention and coverage, and he is getting attention and coverage, even if he's getting condemnation from some quarters. Uh, he's going to use it to build political support, uh, to raise money, to try to win seats. Um, whether you like it or not, what he's doing makes sense in terms of the political interest of a new party. Sure, well, sure, and with all the attention. Is, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and you know, we're going to cover it because that's what we do, and as I said, he's, again, you go to his uh, Twitter feed, he's getting lots of likes, lots of response uh, from people who feel that social conservative values aren't heavily represented 
in the legislature who want those represented, who think those are more important to some voters than elect than economic issues. Mm-hmm. And that's where they're going. That's where he's going. And I think we just have to look at it and say whether we approve of what he's saying or not, uh, he's likely going to get a fair amount of support for his views. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Could the Catholic Church be about to undergo a pretty big shift in its thinking? There have been some hints that perhaps Pope Francis and the Vatican might shift some thinking towards same-sex couples. Now, Pope Francis has left open that possibility of priests blessing same-sex couples if it's limited. Maybe it's a case-by-case basis. But he said this in relation to questions that he was asked by five conservative cardinals. Now, that is quite the shakeup if it actually happens. So could it? Well, Dr. Christina Trana is a professor of religious studies and Catholic ethics at Fordham University and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. How big of a deal potentially is this? This is a a very big deal on one hand and a small deal on the other hand. (laughs) The very big deal is two things. First of all, there's no prohibition, absolute prohibition on blessing same-sex unions or blessing any relationships, even friendships. Um, And that that is a very big deal. The thing that is not so much of a big deal is that it is leaving the definition of marriage in place so that it wouldn't alter the definition of marriage. So that that is not touched. That, That stays as it is. But to be fair, that's how it started in in mainstream society, too, isn't it? That it was like, okay, we'll do the civil unions, and eventually it became just like everything else. Absolutely. And I think the the other big deal about what Francis has done, in answers to all of these five questions, he has basically said to these conservative bishops, A, you are not asking the right question. Let me tell you what question you should be asking. (laughs) And then he says, Now let me tell you how we should decide such questions. And it shouldn't be me telling you the answers. Rather, as a church, we should have a process for discussing these things or for responding to them. So he's saying, you know, I don't really want bishops. I don't want to rule on this. I don't want bishops' conferences to rule on this. I don't want bishops to rule on this. I want pastors to figure out what it is individual people and couples in in their faith life and in their journeys, really need. And if they really need a blessing, those pastors should give them a blessing. Dr. Trena, that in and of itself seems pretty controversial because we're talking about the Catholic Church here, which for centuries has been a top-down organization. Absolutely, and that's the whole point of the Synod. The, whole, the Synod on Synodality isn't actually there to discuss particular moral or theological points. It is actually a meeting to decide how decisions should be made. And what's underway is that in, every, in the answers to all of these questions, the Pope is saying, we need lay people in the conversation. We need women in the conversation. We need more interest in encouraging people on their journey of faith than policing the boundaries of the church. And that is, that is really what conservative bishops are anxious about, that they are losing their grip on the teaching and practice of the church and opening the door to a wider conversation. 
are they losing their grip? Are things actually changing in the Catholic Church? Um, one, one set of indications, at least on the U.S. side of the border, is that in many places they are not because uh, the bishops had control over how synodal conversations would happen and what got forwarded to the Vatican after them. Um, but the, the, the guidelines for holding discussions are really up for debate. In fact, the, one of two of the things that Pope Francis says, it, as, an in, as, a, as an insider, this document is actually quite funny in some places, right? because he says, okay, bishops, you yourselves are asking for a broader conversation by writing me a letter, so you are showing me that what you want is broad conversation, not ruling from the top down, right? Right. Um, and he's, he's also quoting back at them John Paul II, who is in, was an extraordinarily by-the-book conservative pope, um, but he's finding passages in John Paul II that support these new processes and discussions. Okay, so it does sound like then perhaps um, with this big meeting that is happening, there could be some significant decisions made. There could be significant decisions made. Don't look for them this year because they're regrouping next year to actually approve documents, to approve processes. I, I don't know what will actually happen in Rome, but there's a possibility that there will be significant changes in the processes for making decisions. And that is actually even bigger than a change on LGBTQ issues. Dr. Trana, does that give us an indication then of the kind of impact that Pope Francis has had? I know there were some high hopes for sudden changes when he became Pope, but it sounds like it's been more gradual over the years. It's been more gradual, but here is why. Um, As we know, autocrats can make sudden changes. And what Pope Francis wants is a more lasting change that will lead to a different structure and way of functioning in the church that will outlast him by generation. Because as we know from um, our civil governments, when a new prime minister, a new president comes in, there can be a quick change, right? Uh, and, then, and then it can change back with the next leader. Pope Francis is trying to ensure that there is more continuity and more, a more gradual process of change. Um, and that, if, if he accomplishes it, will be his legacy to the church. Is that because of the criticism that, that you know, he knew he would face? I mean, it's very difficult to get things changed in the Catholic Church. So is he doing it the way like, to make sure it is successful? He is doing his best to make sure it is successful, but it is very change, very difficult. I heard a commentator say yesterday that the, the church changes at the pace of the church, which is not very fast at all. So, but a more gradual change will be a more lasting change. A, a sudden change can be quickly reversed. Right. It certainly seems like we're watching kind of history unfold here. But Dr. Trana, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. That's Dr. Christina Trana, who's a professor of religious studies and Catholic ethics at Fordham University, talking about these kind of significant 
changes that are about to happen, slowly happening in the Catholic Church. They have a big meeting actually this week. And uh, one of the things they're going to be talking about is the way in which decision-making is made within the church, which, as we all know, came from the Vatican, and then, boom, everybody else had to go along with it. And that is slowly being changed to the point where individual uh, pastors and priests will have the ability to bless same-sex couples and on the behalf of the church, which... I mean, come on, that is huge when you think about the history of the Catholic Church, right? This is Mornings with Simi. Canada is a land land of many languages, some of which, though, through time and over time have been lost. But that doesn't mean the work isn't being done to try to revive some of them. And that is a very challenging task. Now, this happens all over the world, but there's a lot of work being done right here uh, that we are going to talk about right now. So John Paul Chalikoff joins us, Assistant Professor in Ashinitabi Studies at Algoma University. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So how does how does one even start when it comes to trying to revive a language? Uh, well, there, there's different uh, different st- or different like languages are in different states and different places. Like the our Anishinaabe one's still one of the healthier ones, and uh, so a lot of what's going on that I'm trying to do is kind of preserve uh, some segments or pieces of a specific dialect of the language, which is a uh, a little bit trickier, and uh, and uh, when starting that, really is just finding people and resources, and uh, a lot of it's gathering little terms that my own family have passed down from my grandmother and great grandfather that shared with them, and uh, going to the community and uh, gathering whatever I can from uh, the speakers that still uh, remember pieces of it and that kind of thing. Well, tell me about that dialect then that you're trying to save. Yeah, so my, uh, my, I'm part of, I'm a member of Michipacan First Nation, it's a little Ojibwe community on the northeastern shore of Lake Superior. Uh, so the whole northern part of Lake Superior area, like the dialect, their dialects around there didn't really get well uh, documented over the years. So there's not a not a lot of language data or not a lot of uh, uh, documented uh, pieces of like the variations around there. So a lot of it's just been uh, kind of comparing and contrasting to how I hear other like neighboring communities and then uh, just trying to piece together how sounds are similar and uh, catching those little differences and uh, all those kinds of things. So it's uh, really just working with what we have available at the moment. <laughs> yeah, what is that that's available to you at the moment? Because that must be really hard, asking people to, we need to write this down, we need to get this documented. Yeah, uh, so there's a, there's about, uh, I'd estimate about under 10 speakers in the area. That, 10? Uh, that, yeah, the, the, it's the... Just as like the dialect specifically, like because the language as a whole, it's like a healthier state, but there's not uh, not a whole lot. Uh, so I've been working with whenever I go. So I live in Sault Ste. Marie, which is about two and a half hours east of uh, Walla, Michigan. Walla is a little town, and then Michigan is the reserve out that way. And whenever I take it back out that way, I'll usually work or. One of the elders will usually uh, share little things. So uh, usually it's trying to be uh, like wanting to <laughs> gather as much as we're able to with 
also knowing like uh, uh, it's it's uh, it could be draining work for the the elders too. They're uh, trying to uh, remember the words on the spot and those kinds of things. So it's really just uh, working at the pace that works for them. Uh, whenever we're having, uh, whenever we have time to catch up with, the, with each other. John Paul, is it is it made easier by the fact that this is work that is kind of more commonly done now? That there's that seems to be more important, more significant now to save these languages. I think there's definitely a lot more like shared knowledge about how to document and how to revitalize and how to revive and all all these different. A lot of languages are in these different states, right? Uh, uh, I know on the West Coast, with a lot of the languages out that way, they're uh, much much smaller speaker bases, so they they have a uh, they have a little more fire under to to really work to keep the languages going. Uh, out this way, like Anishinaabe, is one of the one of the healthiest. Uh, but like when looking at it from a specific dialect aspect, like I understand some of that pressure too uh, of trying to gather uh, different pieces. But knowing and seeing different stories and uh, uh, what different communities are doing in different places and seeing those different success stories, are, I think are really helpful and encouraging for uh, revitalizing our languages. What do you do with this information that you collect? What's going to happen to it? Well, I, I, well, I really want to make sure it's uh, shared at community level and collaborating with uh, uh, with Etchipakot and making sure that it's available and shared. And then also uh, I'm hoping to uh, share it with, uh, again, all, all, uh, all making sure that the community directs how they want it to go forward as well so like there's that, that collaborative element of working with the community but uh, at the end of the day a lot of it's really making sure that it's accessible to all of the community and uh some of it's just making sure that some of the local like local ways to say things make it into the schools and uh some of those kinds of things are the early goals right now to gather what you can and just right uh yeah well, it's fascinating work. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for telling us about it. That's John Paul Chalikoff, who's an assistant professor in Ashinanabe Studies at Algoma University, talking about reviving languages that as few as 10 people speak and making sure that they are preserved. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now we're going to talk about BC ferries. Now, is fining BC ferries for missing a sailing going to mean that you can count on the system more? Now, yesterday it was announced that a fine will be levied in the future on BC ferries if a sailing is missed due to crew shortages. Everyone wants this situation to be fixed, right? Nobody wants to show up and then find out your sailing's not happening. But is this the way to do it? Let's talk about it this morning with the help of Rob Fleming, BC's Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. Now, why are you doing this? Is this is this do you really think this is going to work? Well, first of all, I know that I know that uh, news grabbed onto this. I mean, the bigger news of the day was that we protected affordability until 2028 on what would have been 
close to double-digit annual increases on fares. You can imagine how that would compound um, on the cost to transport everything and impact tourism economy on on Vancouver Island. So that's the main takeaway from the uh, announcement yesterday that the Ferry Commissioner took the $500 million worth of investment on affordability and did a good job with that, brought in a reasonable fare cap that is uh, well below the rate of inflation. Um, also, what we're doing in this contract is adding additional sailings on uh, major and minor routes. There's still even some northern routes that uh, have suffered cuts from the last government that are now fully restored and improved upon. So we're we're making some significant improvements. The, on the accountability with the fines, yeah, I, I think it's there's not that many things you can do. Um, but we want the company to focus on avoidable cancellations. And this is a post-pandemic problem in the transportation sector. You see it with Air Canada. You see it with uh, WestJet, unfortunately. You see it with, you saw it yesterday with Via Rail uh, in Eastern Canada. Transportation companies are struggling to attract and retain staff. Uh, These are really good careers. Uh, These are good jobs. Um, We're seeing BC Ferries get out there and and be innovative and creative. They they hired 1,200 people, for example, just this year alone. Um, so they're getting on that. Um, but those are the most avoidable uh, cancellations that uh, have been occurring. And we want that to get that down to as close to zero as possible. Uh, holding their feet to the fire with, with some fines that will uh, return monies to ferry-dependent communities that have not been served as per the schedule that is published by BC Ferries is, is one way to do that. Okay, what do you mean returning the money? Where will that money go if you collect that fine? Well, we're going to work with the ferry advisory committees on how to distribute that. We haven't signed the contract yet. Uh, this is an idea. We've tabled it with BC Ferries. Um, they're they're not uh, disinterested in this. They, they think it's fair. Um, it's also their major area of corporate focus and a, and a significant priority. You've heard the CEO. Uh, he's been on your program many times. He's talked about where they're finding experienced mariners, where they're getting safety certified people to come and work for BC Ferries, where they're recruiting and promoting people within. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably satisfied that they've done a lot in a fairly short period of time uh, under new leadership in the corporation to get at the staff shortages. But I think, you know, over the next four years, to make sure that doesn't slide backwards in any way. It's not a bad idea to have accountability measures built into the contract. So I guess the idea of that is that the crew shortages are somehow avoidable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think they're avoidable? Is it a scheduling problem? It is a retirement wave. A lot of people leaving all kinds of jobs during COVID, calling time, early retirements. Um, It's also, uh, and I think you're seeing the company sit down with the union you know, making compensation more attractive. So they've got a sort of mid-contract wage reopener under discussion right now. There's a lot of things there. Um, We're trying to uh, use some immigration strategies, quite frankly, to uh, help with the shortage. Um, I was very pleased to see that 60 Ukrainians that fled that war-torn country that's an ally of ours, they're experienced mariners who've worked on the Black Sea. They're now working on the Salish Sea here in British Columbia. So they're they're with the company now. So those sorts of things um, are part of the recruitment and retention strategy. And and I think also Indigenous people have not been proportionally part of BC Ferries workforce. The, 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 those that come from that background are proud to work with the company. We're going to make an additional effort to recruit uh, Indigenous people who live in our coastal communities to be part of the company. 
Right. But the idea is that you're saying, you know, maybe this is a scheduling issue, but aren't the, isn't the scheduling, mm-hmm. isn't how many people work on a ship, isn't that already set uh, by maritime regulation? So how can sure. finding always somebody, has been, yeah, always right. will be, always has been, always will be. That is a clear federal area of jurisdiction. Yes, we've had arguments with them over the years about whether they um, have some excessive demands on that. Um, I can't remember BC ever winning a dispute like that. Uh, so we can talk about that, but that's not a strategy. I think that's a wish. Um, we'll keep working on that, and the company makes representations all the time. Uh, but, you know. You're saying they need to be more cautious? They need, they need to overly I, schedule, gonna, perhaps? I'm not going to criticize Transport Canada for putting the safety of passengers first. That is their job. They'd be the first to be criticized if anything happened when the, if there was an emergency uh, on the seas. Um, and I don't think that's the issue. We've had those. Uh, measures in place for for decades and decades, and we have met that. So where we can get reliability improved is to stop the cancellations that are related to staff. And how do we do that? We hire more staff, we train more staff, and we we work on the workplace culture, which is promoting more people from within, uh, making training uh, less expensive for individual employees. There's all kinds of incentives that the company is looking at right now. Okay, so then is this kind of idea of a fine then just to say we want you to take this more seriously? That's exactly what it is, yes. If you don't spell it out, um, you know, I, think it, I think it elevates the importance of that. It, 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 uh, you know, there's always going to be cancellations due to weather. Uh, you can't control that. We, we live on a wild coast and we get you know, significant storms. Um, that'll happen. But what is within human control uh, are the... Um, the staffing issues and back to your point about the, the strict transport Canada ratios for safety certified staff. Yeah. If, if you have, um, let's say on a smaller vessel where uh, five or six are required and one doesn't show up, it, that cancels the sailing. Um, so it's, it's not massive absenteeism where, where that's a problem. It's, um, one or two staff that get us below the threshold of, of being able, uh, legally to sail. Okay, so will there be more investments happening, do you foresee, in BC Ferries? Because one of the other problems is these mm-hmm. aging ships, right? This, this yeah. maintenance that needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot in the commissioner's uh, report, Simi, that uh, I think you'll find interesting uh, to look into in further detail. Um, massive investment in new vessels, uh, big investment in electrification. Uh, and, uh, and the climate goals of the company and, and, and our province uh, also uh, significant capital investments in terminal improvements. So uh, this will be the biggest investment in the company's history. There's no question about that. And we've got growth in our province. We've got growth in coastal communities. We need to plan and account for that. And we still have some pretty old vessels. Uh, a number have been replaced, which is good. We've got six island-class vessels, for example, in service now and uh you know the fleet renewal program suffered uh, a bit of a setback as did the terminal improvements during covid the company deferred taking on new debt and uh, making those capital investments at a time when the world looked really really uncertain uh but government stepped in and, and financially helped the company uh, get through the loss in passenger revenue and uh we made sure that they were an essential service and were there for everybody. I think you can imagine the crewing problems that we're having now, how much more exacerbated they'd be if we had let the company lay off and furlough thousands of employees. The service would have been decimated. So we did that with public transit as well, and that's why TransLink today 
has the strongest ridership bounce back in all of North America. It was a good investment to make. But do you see more investments coming? Yeah, absolutely. No, there will be new ships. Uh, there will be new terminal improvements. Um, and uh, there will be electrification, uh, you know, avoiding uh, fossil fuels, um, greening our fleet. Uh, we've got six vessels that have hybrid electric capacity now. There's more uh, on the way. And, uh, right. and I think there's more money there for an enhanced maintenance schedule as well. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Simi. Appreciate that. That's Rob Fleming, BC's Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, kind of filling in the blanks for the questions that we had about this BC Ferries announcement, about uh, capping that rate increase, and about the potential for fines, for missed sailings. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. City of Vancouver definitely has an affordable housing option, a housing problem for sure. It also has a childcare issue. Somebody trying to find childcare in this city is under a constant challenge with that. So can these two things be tackled at the same time? Well, Councillor Mike Klassen thinks it can be. In fact, that's something he's going to be discussing tonight at a city council meeting, or today anyway. Uh, He joins us now, ABC Vancouver City Councillor Mike Klassen. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, Timmy. So tell me about this. Obviously, housing is a huge problem. Childcare is a big problem. You think we can do this at the same time? Uh, absolutely. So uh, what uh, we are bringing forward to the council chamber today is uh, an innovative idea, I think, which is to uh, have the city bring forward some available public land to uh, construct uh, prefabricated child care centers that can take up to 50 or up to 100 child, uh, child care spaces and then um, uh, construct uh, housing above them. And so we can do up to six stories of housing. And uh, knowing that the uh, adjacency of the child care center to the, uh, to the housing, we have to make sure that the people who live there uh, are uh, past vulnerable sector checks. But it's also a really great opportunity for us to find affordable housing for essential workers, particularly early child care uh, educators who uh, are in high demand and often struggle to try and make ends meet in our very expensive city. Okay, so how much like, public land do we have available for something like this? So uh, there are, uh, I think, opportunities. Like the city has uh, land, and we would like to try and use that land to create, I suppose, the highest and best use. So, um, you know, if it's in the downtown area, we're going to be building, uh, you know, towers that are, you know, a dozen or uh, 20 or 30-story towers rather than something small. But there are parts of the city that are definitely sort of described as having childcare deserts. There are places on the south side, on the east side, uh, in, in neighborhoods where it's just really hard to find childcare. Those are perfect neighborhoods for us to put a building. And we're going to be, uh, we've asked staff, we're going to be asking staff to uh, speak to the school district as well to see, because I know, for example, my daughter was raised in a, in a childcare building, an outbuilding on a, on a school property. Uh, so it's a very common practice. We have uh, uh, the Crosstown Elementary, which is just down here in in, uh, in Falls Creek, which has uh, housing over and above uh, an elementary school. So there are precedents for this. I think the, the, the neat and, and kind of unique part of this one is the fact that we would be looking at workforce housing to put in here. There are precedents for that, but we just don't have a lot of that already in the city of Vancouver. So how, how do you see that working then? So it would be somebody 
uh, you'd have to have a job. You'd have to show that you're working in the city of Vancouver. Would it be for parents, single parents, families? Like they would have to, it's like co-op housing, right? You'd have to fulfill certain requirements to be able to live there. Yeah. And I think that's, that's again, there's there a lot of precedent for that. Out at UBC, for example, the UBC Lands Trust, which is their sort of public land, they have housing that is for, you know, for uh, for professors and, and, uh, and teaching assistants and other workers on the campus. And they have to abide, they have to basically be working for the university to be able to live there. Uh, I'm the former uh, president of a not-for-profit society, Pal Vancouver, where you had to be from the entertainment sector in order to be qualified for the non-market housing there. So it, there are uh, precedents for this one, and I am obviously working with BC Housing and working with the city. We'll be able to kind of work out the, the, the ground rules for that. Okay, and which neighborhoods do you think would need this the most? Well, you know, it's been a year since I was out knocking on doors for the election, but I remember speaking to people in, in, in lots of different neighborhoods around the city who, who said that their child care was their biggest concern. It was preventing them from, uh, you know, advancing their careers, and it was preventing, really, it, was a, it puts a lot of downward pressure on our economy because when housing is, is such, a, at a, such a high cost here, um, you know, you need to have uh, usually two parents or more people living in the in the household who are going to be able to bring an income and uh, child care makes that possible. So uh, we were just at UBCM, the Union of BC Municipalities Conference, a couple of weeks ago. We had a chance to meet with ministers. So we have the Minister of Child Care, Grace Lohr, uh, Minister Ravi Callan for housing, and uh, Rakhna Singh, who's the education minister. All of them have been contacted and made aware of this opportunity. There are uh, dollars available for that. So we'll have to work closely with the province to make a program like this happen. So when I talked to you a couple of weeks ago in the summertime, it was about that other child care issue that kind of cropped mm-hmm. up in Vancouver, about the neighborhoods that sometimes oppose these things. How do you, how do you propose to overcome that, the not in my neighborhood I think this would be, I've, certainly I think this would be different. And to, to be honest, the amount of uh, email and communication that we receive from the public um, demanding that we actually try and make more child care available as a response to that issue that took place in the summer uh, is a clear indication that this is a huge priority of, uh, of working families in the city. Um, and uh, on that particular issue, uh, Councillor Dominato, who has uh, uh, sort of co-submitted the, the motion uh, on the the child care and I are working on uh, trying to work on some of the regulations in the city just to allow uh, more of that availability of, of uh, those kinds of child care spaces which are uh, you know uh, more privately operated. So that sounds like it was a real eye-opener. Oh, without question. I mean, it, it certainly is an issue that uh, we're alive to. Uh, we estimate there's about 15,000 uh, spaces short to demand here in the city right now. Um, with this one is is the possibility of the largest single one-time introduction of uh, hundreds of new child care spaces that the city has ever seen. Um, so uh, it, because of its boldness, I'm hoping that, uh, that all of our partners that come together, uh, again, our city staff would... Uh, sort of take on the, the line share of the work to, to kind of negotiate this, find the land, and then working with the province and uh, the school district would just make this a, just a total home run for the city of Vancouver. Now, you mentioned prefabricated uh, construction. So what kind of a difference do you think that can make in terms of keeping costs down? Uh, well, there are <clears throat> there are companies that uh, do provide these. And, you know, I, when we think of anything of modular buildings, we tend to have associate them with something really boxy, really plain looking. Uh, the ones that 
they're building now are super attractive. They look, uh, they just absolutely add to the to the streetscape of a neighborhood. Um, uh, you know, they have lots of uh, gardens around them, and of course, you know, uh, childcare spaces require outdoor space. So we could literally put two of them side by side, and and um, just uh, uh, as they do sometimes, uh, create shifts for the use of of how the kids can access the playing fields, uh, and then we can actually double the number of childcare spaces in those areas. So I think we're again we're going to be looking at all those opportunities because I think it's just the demand is so high and uh, this is just a, a great opportunity with modern construction um, policies that are in place the dollars are available from the province and just everybody really knowing that this is key for us to succeed. Now you're going to table this at the meeting today so obviously it's still in the very beginning stages but what kind of a timeline do you hope because stuff like this it's great to pass it but putting it into reality is another thing altogether. Well <clears throat> we've been socializing this for quite a few months. I really began to start working on this earlier in the year and have made uh, all the stakeholders aware that this is coming. Uh, so hopefully this is just a decision point that allows us to kind of kick things into gear. I'm hoping that the staff can come back very quickly with a, a number of suggested sites where we can put these buildings, uh, that the province will be able to come to the table and work with us in, uh, in BC Housing as well, because you know if we're going to be having social and non-market housing there, they're going to have to be a, a player. That's Minister's Callan, Minister Callan. Uh, ministry. Um, uh, but uh, with this kind of building form, we can have things up in 12 to 18 months. Like we could really rock this if we want to. Well, you know what? We're going to have to track this and see what happens. Councillor Klassen, thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Simi. You'll be hearing more about that for sure. That's Councillor Mike Klassen, ABC Vancouver City Councillor, talking about combining the needs of housing and child care uh, on, on public land in Vancouver and, and making a difference that way. Do you think that would work?